Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect like the, the policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The views and opinions of the show do not constitute recommendations for therapy. Please, Please contact, contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science episode number 127. It's been a month, uh, about three and a half weeks since we've been on air. I'm Matt Hot, joined as always by the same cast and crew of this Titanic, Michelle Wintering. Hello, Matt. And Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? Guys, I feel like so much has happened and we'll get to it. But first on today's show, I'm excited because we're back on air and we figured we would tackle some softball questions on today's show. Uh, the big topic, we're going to talk about the ethical or unethical use of ABA and the encroachment or non-encroachment into the speech world. Uh, we're going to check in with the informed SLP. Uh, we also have our SS pod due process, which asks the super important question about the use of standardized assessment in deciding treatment goals. We also have our SS pod shout out and we look at future ASHA conventions since the one next month uh, no longer exists. But first, we always like to hear from you. So make sure you head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. Email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Phone call. You can text us, 614-681-1798. You can hashtag it up, hashtag SSPod. And that gets Michelle and Michael uh, engaged on the social medias, the Facebooks, the Instagrams. I still, We still need a TikTok. That's on you. Uh, I, don't know. I don't know about maybe that. Maybe a Snapchat. Maybe a Snapchatter. I don't think we, we need, need that. that. We don't need that. Guys, it's been it's been a while. Last last time I saw you guys, I had two children. Now I have three, and uh, the lack of sleep is engaging, and uh, engaging the, the amount of stress a she's newborn puts cute. onto your house. Oh, I love her. I think she's cute. But guys, there is so much more stress on a newborn than there is on a four year old. Like like <laughs> legit. 
Uh, we did have a scary moment, though. She did have a three-day layover in the NICU down here in Cincinnati. So a huge shout-out to the NICU nurses and doctors. Uh, she was down there for, for observation. Nothing crazy happened. But that is such a humbling place to be down there in the NICU, y'all. Yeah, that sounds that, that, that sounds tough. Hey, and I, shout out to the therapist in those NICUs, right? That's right. Ugh. Big time. There's SLPs and PTs and OTs. Yeah, I had a little run in with an SLP student in the NICU. You know, who? So, okay, I actually made a post about this on the Facebook. And I, th- what do we do? Or, I'm just going to jump into a hot take on this one. Uh-oh. <laughs> Bring we it on. Have to, <laughs> we have to be so freaking good on our paperwork and here's why our daughter they said failed her abr test at bedside in the nicu i was there when she failed on the discharge paperwork the slp student put that she passed her abr and this is an an slp grad student she undergrad trying to get into a grad program she worked for the audiology department at the hospital okay she marked on her discharge paperwork uh, that she passed. Yeah, she failed it. So then I had to go to my pediatrician and say, hey, I was sitting right there when she failed it. I need a referral to Children's Hospital here in Cincinnati for their audiology department. She's like, well, you're a therapist. I trust you. So she gave us a referral and things could have been a whole lot worse if we would have waited 12 to 18 months to find out if there was any hearing deficits. And our daughter. So yes, shout out to the clinicians. I my hot take is to the whoever they hired to run the ABR, Mm -hmm. who didn't mark the right thing that could have caused a whole lot of issues if we would have waited twelve or eighteen months. Yeah, and waited until it was just found developmentally. So I didn't think I'd be jumping into a hot take. Yeah, I had to. So side note. If you ever have any paperwork problems, when you call the safety officer at the hospital, if you ask for a root cause analysis, they freak out. Michelle, your eyes just got huge. Yeah, I'm just curious I, like, what so that a, means. <laughs> so a root cause analysis I found out. Mike, do you have you ever heard this term in the private practice realm? Um, I don't think so. So basically, it's where you're asking them to find out where the paperwork screw up happened. Okay. So they have to go through, and now someone's butt is on the line for a paperwork screw up because mm-hmm. it's a mischarting. It's well, and I—I I mean, I would add. I, I know you said you weren't—you don't want to get into it too, too much, but yeah. Um, having worked with families for years now who have children who are deaf or hard of hearing, um, unfortunately, I've met four, five, seven-year-olds who have. Um, they looking back at old paperwork, they didn't pass a screening, whether I'm talking at a school, at a daycare, at their newborn checkup, like at birth that Mm -hmm. someone didn't follow up with or didn't give the right resources to parents, or they weren't, you know, informed of what, what was going on. So, I mean, and you just, I mean, you said yourself, Matt, even your pediatrician said, well, I trust you. You're a therapist. A parent shouldn't have to be a therapist right, to get the right mm-hmm. follow-up and intervention for their child. Like you knew what to ask for because you were at the ABR and you remembered the results. Not everybody's at the ABR either. Now get this for some 
questionable ethics of the person who did the ABR Oof. for my daughter. I'm like, I'm mad for you, Matt. I'm sorry. But, oh, yeah, I got perturbed. Here's something that was a little bit questionable on the ethics train. Uh, when I said, oh, who do I need to schedule with? Our Because our middle son failed, or not a middle son, our middle child failed um, his ABR when he was born. And, you know, it's the fluid in the ears and all that. And then he goes and passes and everything's fine. And I said, you know, we're going to probably schedule with children's. And she goes, oh, we're not allowed to tell you to schedule at children's anymore because we're losing too much money as a clinic. So we need you to follow up with us. Who said that? The little the the young woman who ran the abr on my daughter who then mischarted it in the chart who Who's then being I asked for brutally honest with you about what she was told to <laughs> I, well she was like oh this guy's an slp he'll understand no not when you screw up the paperwork and you as a parent is all are always allowed to say no i want to go to as long as it's covered by your insurance, you know what I mean? Like right, there's right. So root cause analysis is evidently the words that cause the safety officer's butt to tighten up real quick because she went from like casual conversation with me about the paperwork screw up to all of a sudden started calling me Mr. Hot and yes, sir, no, sir. And I knew I hit it right. So And for Shout those out. in other regions of the country, that's not the norm in Ohio. No, no, like no. The no. yes, and sir, no, sir. Yeah. Shout out to my friend Aaron who sent me a message on Facebook and was like, you got to ask for a root cause analysis. And they'll be willing to help you because you're not looking to sue the hospital. So, yeah. On a more positive note, I took the boys to a farm today. We're getting ready for my son's fourth birthday, and I got all the Halloween decorations up. So that's been my three weeks. <laughs> Matt had a baby, went through some major <laughs> yeah. stuff, and exciting. Hung out in the NICU. I learned how to scrub in to go to the NICU. Yeah, that's um, a process. So uh, we're also working with Good Sam. I'm trying to get a whole or the hospital down here, find out how much they cost to put up those little. Uh, barriers i guess they're like privacy screens uh because my wife and i want to purchase one for them down there because there's not enough purchase not enough privacy screens in the nicu they had 55 babies down there oh. and like you're you're i'm not giving away anything hippo wise but like when we were down there uh there was a, a a parent that came in dressed like they were about to go to work and the nurse looked at him and said hey, your child's only allowed out of their, what they call the giraffe. It's the thing that they can put all the oxygen air into if they need to. Only allowed out for 90 minutes a day, and we left them in there so you could have the full 90 minutes with them. But so, but they didn't have enough screens for that parent and that child to have a private moment oh. because they gave my wife two of them because she was breastfeeding. Yeah, so... Shout out to the NICU poops. All right. Let's go to positive. Mike, how has your last month been? <laughs> it's it's certainly been good. So I've been uh, I've been working at a school, uh, a private school that has the, all the kids back. Uh, and that's been a great experience. Uh, it's been really cool watching the kids really, you know, they, they wear their masks all day and very few kids, maybe like one or two at the whole school. Uh, have trouble wearing the masks all day. So it's been great watching them follow the protocols and washing their hands and remain socially distant and be there in person, which has been awesome. And it's been great having that little bit of normalcy. Um, and I've been in my clinic more and more. So I've been doing less and less teletherapy and still, of course, doing a ton of it. Uh, but just being back in the clinic and 
uh, just being back to in person and getting out more. Uh, it's been it's been it's been really cool. It's been really cool to get a little bit back. Of course, it's not the same having to wear masks sometimes, double masking it sometimes. Uh, sometimes wearing the plastic shield, but it's been it's been really good being back. I so we have to wear the plastic shield in the nursing home. I hate that plastic shield mm-hmm. because it that sound bounces right back. Yeah. And so they say they and they say it does goggles. nothing. They say it does yeah. they say it does nothing at all. They order me goggles, so I get I get to wear those this week. <laughs> now, when you say that you're working with a school, are you going into the school or are you just kind of seeing one or two or uh, I go into the school. I have like uh, my own little small little office. <laughs> and uh yep. And uh, and and the kids come in one at a time, and I work with them. I, wor- I work with a small handful of kids at the school. So, so you've either... just contracted with the school for that yep. with your business. Yep. Nice. So either you, every school-based SLP is about to agree with you or be super mad at you. Would you say that your office is a dedicated speech therapy room, or <laughs> multi-purpose that you get to use every now and then when you come into work? Well, the first couple of years I was there, it was a multi-purpose room. Oh, you've got seniority. And I was constantly getting like kicked out for like meetings and things like that and all that kind of thing. But now I have a very small room uh, in, in like the corner of the, cool. bu- corner of the building. So it, it gets the job done. I certainly can't complain. It's a, it's a beautiful school, beautiful facilities. So it's a, I, I, I have no complaints. Did you all see the post on the uh, school-based SLP's Facebook page where the lady, she was given a dressing room from the theater department? No. So it's got like a sink and then like a giant like makeup counter, obviously. And with like giant mirror and the super bright lights that you need when putting on makeup for, for a theater. And I was like, oh, that doesn't look good. And then someone was like, oh, that looks like a theater dress or changing room. And I was like, that's not a changing room. That's a dressing room. I'm a theater minor, and I know that. Um, Michelle, how's your week? Been? How's your week? How's your month been? Haven't been able to check in with you for a while. Have you moved to a third house yet? In <laughs> Just a second, which I believe a month ago, I was telling you that we might be moving. Yes. And we did. We moved 0.7 miles away. And... Uh, but hey, we're in a house that doesn't have flooding or termites or mold or a crack in the foundation. So we're doing great. Yay. And how's baby uh, James adjusting to Kansas? Um, he seems to like it. Okay. We uh, we went to a farm yesterday too, Matt. Um, Did to you? Go, yeah, because we're, I'm located kind of near Kansas City, right on the border of Kansas and, um, and Missouri, right? Mm-hmm. So you cross over without even realizing like you're Fair crossing enough. between the two states. And um, I think both of you guys live on state borders as well, if mm-hmm. I'm right. So you're used to that. But but yeah, so we were in Missouri checking out a little farm and um, James got to see goats and cows and horses Aww. and ducks and chickens and everything else. So he's been talking about that for a couple of days. But, uh, but yeah, we're doing well, settling in, exploring. It's a small, smaller town here and... Um, got some great neighbors and just a good community set up since we're only here for like nine more months now, which is nuts. So it's a pretty quick turnaround, especially when we had to move after being here for a month. That's hard to settle into. So I I feel you there. So yeah, no, I love the farm stuff. We're doing the virtual stuff with Michael or with our oldest one. 
For so, the farm or for school? <laughs> for school. <laughs> and my uncle has a black Angus farm down here in Cincinnati. Um, so, well, he has a farm and he raises black Angus cattle. So we went down there and both my boys got to like pet a cow. And then he took us on his four wheeler and the kids, my son's like, this is a field trip. And I was like, Ugh, yes, it is. <laughs> this is a COVID field trip, man. This is, <laughs> this is what we are doing. Uh, all right, so every week we want you to send us in what we call the SS Pod shout-out. You can use hashtag SS Pod shout-out or hashtag SS Pod. You can smoke signal it, AAC us, ASL, call us. Who cares? Let us know what's happening. But the SS Pod shout-out is our opportunity to recognize somebody doing something super awesome in the field uh, of speech and language pathology. And this week's shout out goes to Dr. Heidi. I am going to mess up all of the names, so I apologize. Dr. Heidi <laughs> Alaskeri. She's the lead co-chair for the T20 Task Force 6 on Economy, Employment, and Education in the Digital Age in Saudi Arabia. Uh, she's a U.S. educated and trained SLP. And she is also the current CEO of the Special Olympics Saudi Arabia. So... She's also previously the director of research affairs at the King Salmon Center for Disability uh, Research. So she was recently named the co-chair for the T20 Task Force for Education in the Digital Age. So shout out to Dr. Heidi. Shout out. On the flip side, I figured this would be the fun softball question for us. The SS Pod due process. That's your opportunity to give us an anonymous or non-anonymous question that we can banter back and forth in our own witty little way. And hopefully come up with an answer. We also, you can do that through our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. Text messages 614-681-1798. This week, it's an anonymous question from an SLP asking, why do so many clinicians only use standardized testing results to make determinations? It feels that if the child was above 16%, then they don't qualify for services. And if they're below 16%, then they automatically qualify. No questions asked. No questions asked. Should therapists be doing more testing with more standardized assessment? And then what do you do if one's above 16 and one's below? I am so glad we're talking about this. <laughs> I, I think it's a softball question. That's just an easy one answer, right? I freaking hate standardized testing. Do you hate really? it, hate it, hate it. And especially with ADHD and executive functioning, uh, which, which of course I, I specialize in, uh, there is no standardized test for ADHD and executive functioning, period. There's executive function tests. There's tests that, that study aspects of executive functioning, but there is no way to get a handle on a kid's executive functioning unless you do like a checklist, observation, and analyze some writing samples and things like that. But it's all checklists and observations. There's no tests because with tests, you're naturally prompting. It's more black and white. There's a right answer. There's a wrong answer. There's, you know, it, executive functioning is at its core is basically your imagination. It's your ability to use your nonverbal working memory, your visual imagery system, and your verbal working memory, which is your internal language. There is no test, and there never will be a test that can measure that. And I, I, the the focus on standardized testing is so frustrating. And there's been times where I've been asked to do extensive evaluations and people are looking for tests. They're looking for standard deviations. They're looking for normative updates. They're looking for this. Look, if the mom is saying that this kid is incredibly prompt dependent at home, 
if I have conversations with him, I do a, I do a language sample, I, I, I analyze writing samples, and you can see that this person has some deficits in writing, task initiation, prompting at home, prompting at school, missing assignments here, missing assignments there, then there are some executive function delays and there's, and there's a, a language issue there. There's no standardized test that can truly, I don't care if it's speech, language, obviously articulation is different because it's more you know, black and white, like Goldman Fristo is quite helpful, but there's no test that's gonna give you a true picture of a kid. You need to interview teachers, you need to interview parents, and you need to do observations. To me, that is what's, what testing is all about. So what, um, do you have any checklists that you have purchased or that you tend to use in your practice, Mike, or that these ones that you or, or fellow professionals have created? Yep, uh, the, well, there's always ones that I give and I, I always give it an, ex an extensive uh, checklist to parents to fill out and, and respond. Uh, but the brief is really good. The behavior rating inventory of executive functioning that one's really, really good. Uh, there's the PLSI, which is a pragmatic language inventory. Um, there's the self-observational rating scale, which is a good one, which is a, 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 a small little part of the self for, for pragmatic profile and things like that. Um, I, I love the checklists, and I love to give it to as, multi, as many people as you possibly can. The good thing about the brief is there's a parent form, a teacher form, and a self-rating form for the individual student. Um, and to me, that's the best thing to do is, and you know, everything is different in so many different classes too. So you can give it to multiple teachers and, um, that's really what, what gives you the best idea of what's happening with this kid. Is it right that those would be norm referenced, but not standardized? Uh, I believe so. But when, when I administer these, I, mm -hmm. I tend to honestly not even like fully score them. Like, I don't like score, you know, I'll, I'll go through it and I'll see like a, like the brief, for example, I even have one right here, of course. Mm -hmm. And do you then kind of use that SLP as hurts. your, so here's the brief. Yeah, it's right, right here. Next <laughs> to me. Yep. So with the brief, you score, uh, never, sometimes often. So mm -hmm. does this happen? Never, sometimes or often. So I'll just take note of how many oftens there are, what it is. And if there's a certain amount of oftens, you can make the clinical judgment that there's some developmental delays there. I'm yeah. not, I, don't, I don't need to sit there and, and give a number and a, an age equivalence or a standard score. That's not, you know, that's not helping. You know, basically all we need to do is decrease this child's prompt dependency and make them more independent so that one day the parent fills this out and there's zero offense or mm -hmm. one or two. How often do you like to, I'm, I'm just super curious because this is your area. Mm -hmm. um, how often do you like to redo that checklist with the parent? Um, I tend to really only do it when there's an evaluation happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of students I see are constantly being evaluated by the school or other outside professionals. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the students I see are constantly getting neuropsych evaluations. And the brief is really something that you tend to see in a neuropsych evaluation, not a speech evaluation. Uh, I was going to say, I feel like the school psych does the brief. Yeah. So it's, you know, and, and that's another one of the many reasons why I don't score it when I give it, because, you know, can SLPs really do that? You know, I, I just report informally on it. Uh, but a lot of the kids I see are constantly getting reevaluated by neuropsych. So I kind of go off of those evaluations. But every once, most of the evaluations I do are speech and language evaluations, where I'm doing the self, I'm doing the Goldman Fristo, I'm doing literacy, phonological awareness, the whole battery. 
but I did just look it up for you, by the way, that it is a level C according to the, the publisher for a qualification. And that is a, uh, psychologist, SLP, OT master's level. There you go. For, for administering it, the brief. There you have it. So yes, you are. (laughs) You are qualified. Don't sell yourself. I haven't done it. I haven't done it anyway, so that's fine. But yeah. Sorry, I'm looking up the executive functions test normative update version over here. So, like, here's where I run into my my reports have swollen to 16. My last two ETRs that I've written, the speech part has been 14 pages and 16 pages. Now, some of that is I've I've adapted and adopted new new stuff to put into my reports, including a more extensive like therapy background on the student more in depth like you're doing more narrative yeah so it's going to take more space and like but when we come down to the standardized assessment i'm doing like five standardized assessments four standardized assessments for a student michelle your eyes just got yeah i mean i'm sorry that's a lot and you're in a school i don't know how you have time for that (laughs) my caseload is like 40 to 50 kids so like uh like my current battery is the expressive one-word picture vocab, the receptive one-word picture vocab, uh, and then usually the self or the castle. And I just started using the castle. I like the castle. Um, but, Mike, I'm with you. Like, Michelle, we took the same diagnostics class, I believe. And I remember uh, Dr. Marinelli beating into our heads with the diagnostic triangle. Yeah, we've remember. Ta- this comes up every probably 10 or 15 episodes, I feel yeah. like. Right? And it's like the informal assessment is just as important or more important than the standardized assessment and our clinical opinion on the thing. They use and the I analogy often, of a three-legged chair, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I often wonder if we have So the SLPs. three parts, just so people listen. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go for it. Um, but- Clinical judgment, right? Our clinical judgment, informal assessment, and formal assessment. So that there's not, all three of those are equally important, was the emphasis. I often wonder, and I read, you know, students transfer in. I read previous SLP reports from from SLPs that have retired or through different school districts. I often wonder if, as a field, we don't know how to interpret the data. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I don't know what you mean. So I remember we had a clinical person, a clinical supervisor who said never or don't always look at the, you know, when we do the self, don't look at the expressive language score because that can hide uh, deficits. You go and look at the individual test scores and like the individual subtests. And if they show a problem in uh, recall, then what we should do is you should go and then do an informal assessment based off of the recall or whatever they're they're starting to fail in. Mm-hmm. And I often wonder if we've got a problem where we don't do that as a field as much as we should. Because, you know, Mike, you mentioned how you're taking your, your test and you don't even score it. So what you're doing is you're really looking at that data and or not even the you're not looking at the test data or the, the testing standardize whatever you're looking at the individual results and teasing out strengths and weaknesses exactly but i feel like a lot of times we go well they scored poorly on 
uh, what is that part of the self where they have to recall the sentence? Recalling sentences. Recalling oh, sentences. Yeah, there you go. Yep. There but you like, have it. We go, oh, they have a memory problem. We need to work on that. And it's like, yep, well, exactly. I mean, yeah, maybe, but they also only, you know, what is it? The coach gave the team the trophy that won the track meet on Saturday, and the student might be like, on Saturday, the team got the trophy from the coach for winning. And you're like, oh, that's so wrong. And it's like, well, not. Not really. I mean, it's wrong, but they got it right. Like according to the scoring, they got it wrong. <laughs> right. And I think we do so much. We don't, mm -hmm. you know, I, I look at the expressive one word picture vocab test and it's like, they, they look at it and they, what is it? A Jaguar. And the kid says cheetah. And they're like, that's wrong. And it's like, well, maybe the kid doesn't know zoological naming stuff for an mm -hmm. animal. Like, but I mean, this is the debate not just speech pathology gets into, mm -hmm. you know, I know studying psych in undergrad, we talked about all the biases in psychology, cognitive assessments, right? Um, intelligence quotients. And, um, you know, just because a kid hasn't been exposed to this particular vocabulary or describes it in a different way. All right. So my take from that, Matt, see if you follow, yeah. is when I've worked particularly in outpatient clinics, several times is that I started to kind of get to the, I, I got pretty good at doing what I would call an insurance-based assessment, right? <laughs> um, which is anybody who works in a clinic type setting where you have a 30 minute or a 40 minute or an hour long session, and you can't get that, you can't pull that kid in for three or four or five sessions right, to right. complete the full self or do some full battery. You're going by, I need a couple scores because I know this That's kid fair. needs therapy based on clinical judgment and informal assessment and parent interview or whatever it is. And so I'm going to get a couple subtests or a couple scores or a total language score from the self, something that I can That's fair. get them on my books, get them in my clinic and get them the help they need and then use follow-up assessments, whether they're informal or interviews or checklists to tailor my therapy better to them that's fair i can hear that i can feel that but i feel like a lot of i mean tell me please listeners if you don't feel this way but i have felt like particularly when i'm out working in a clinic that it has to deal with insurance that that becomes people's guiding standpoint which i don't like i wish that wasn't the case because mike is talking about doing it in a different way right because you're in a different setting than a Someone who's directly billing insurance. Super bill for the win, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> unfortunately, insurance. We talk about it all the time. I feel like I'm beating the same question, but um, we just get so trapped in some ways of trying to get these clients and these patients the services they need, but also having to, on paper, justify it, and that insurance provider isn't reading our narrative they're looking at the chart with the standardized score i was talking to an slp and uh, they had a parent come to them and want to decline standardized assessment because they felt their child is a good standardized test taker hmm. but has all these other little problems and in the past they've they've scrape by on passing on standardized assessment but like the parent always felt like there was something more going on 
but because the school district says this kid is passing on the standardized assessment, no therapy needed. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, schools are the same way when you're looking at qualifying for services, depending the district you're in. Mm-hmm. I think it can vary as to if that's a kid true. gets quickly picked up for services at a borderline score, or if they're really requiring like two standard deviations. I don't know. That's the hard part. I mean, even two standardized deviations, it's like... That's a big the, thing, because you can look at a kid who's at negative one and a half standard deviations or negative one standard deviations and see a drastic difference between them and their peers. I had a, I worked with a school psych that if any of my testing was standard score of 80 or above, she would uh, adamantly decline services for the student. So all of a sudden, whenever I worked with that school psych... I became much more strict on what I accepted as right answers. Mm-hmm. Oops. All yeah. of a sudden there's now scoring in the 78 range. And I hate that. That's how we have yeah. to look at things. You know, it's, it's, it's like playing a game, not ugh. the, yeah. So Angie Merced, she is uh, one of the stressed SLPs. Like uh, we've had her on the air before talking about how to manage mindfulness and all that stuff. And, on a unrelated topic, but kind of related to writing reports, she mentioned how we need to move away from the narrative writing and maybe move more into a bullet point type writing. And I loved what she wrote where she wrote something where we have to come to terms that people are not reading the glorious, beautiful reports we're writing (laughs) and they're just scanning them for the details or skipping to the end. And uh, my 16-page reports, I think I'm going to try to start bullet-pointing more information. Mike, are you a narrative guy? Or are you a bullet-point guy? Bullet-point guy. Michelle? Um, depends. It depends. Yeah. Depends. Yeah, yeah. Have, combo. It depends. And it depends on what setting I'm in and, you know, who I'm giving that report That's to. Fair. Because, like like I said, working out patient <clears> where <throat> I know it's going to – he needs that stamp of approval from insurance – I got a much more succinct in my charts Mm, and in my like, okay, here's the language skills. Boom, boom, boom. Here's what their deficits are. Boom, boom, boom. And, and then I would start, I even pulled quotes from Ash's webpage on definitions and I would bold them. I would in my insurance based ones. Yeah. Especially if it was an appeal, um, say somebody wasn't approved for services. Um, or for continued services because they didn't make enough progress or made just a little bit too much progress. And insurance wants them in this perfect little window of needing therapy. Then um, what myself and my coworkers would do is take our report, highlight the parts where we show that they, they deserve and need services, require services for these reasons, according to ASHA, and I would bold it. There were times I didn't even rewrite my report because I'm like, they didn't read it. I just bolded what <laughs> they said wasn't question for you in guys. there. <laughs> would would it be unethical? And Mike, would it be unethical in the private practice world? Michelle, would it be unethical in your realm? If like we were not to include part of a test that they did well in because we knew insurance or a director would would decline them based off of that little part of the test. I think it depends so, on what you're. It's a good question. Yeah, I think it depends on I what do kind it, of. But I don't know. I'm just wondering. Yeah, but what kind of evaluation are they looking for? Because, like we said, are they going to read everything, or do they need to know exactly what their deficits are? They don't care about what they can do. 
Does that yeah, make sense? I think, no, it's it's uh, it is, and I'm just thinking back. Like I remember back in grad school where they were like, we need to like write nice and beautiful reports, and we need to use our million dollar words that we're paying for. And now we're all like, let's move to bullet points because no one cares. Like I don't, I don't, I went to the same school as you, and I don't feel like I got that takeaway. You, you didn't? <laughs> no, I got that takeaway of like. I had a clinical supervisor tell me that we need to write better. I need to write better reports. And that's what moved me from like one page documents into like miniature novels. I felt like I narrowed down my writing in grad school. Oh, it did not get enough. longer. Yeah. You're a psych though. You're a psych major, right? I mean, psych, psych and public relations, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but... oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Narrow down your public relations. I don't need a three paragraph document to say <laughs> that the firemen are taking off on Monday because it's a holiday. That's like, true. I, you talk about media writing. That's sort of crushed my my um, flowery language of writing when I got my first uh, media writing assignment in undergrad back. And it was just three quarters. It was crossed out like, don't need this. It's going in the newspaper. Don't need this. <laughs> Mike, how long's your reports in the private practice realm? That totally depends. So if it's a regular evaluation, I would say yep. maybe, you know, eight to 10 pages probably. Okay. But okay, if it's good. like an IEE evaluation, then it's probably, then it could be anywhere between 20 and 40 pages. 40? Mm -hmm. So you sound very narrative based on... Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, those I know are, you're bullet pointing, are, but... Yeah, bullet points for like the summary and those sorts of things, yeah. But I feel like given that you're doing these checklists and parent interviews, you have to be more descriptive mm -hmm. than just a chart with a score. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. 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 Have you guys used Google Forms yet? This is not a commercial for Google Forms. I'm just like, have you have you heard of Google Forms yeah. Yes, what of do you, course. What do you so, mean use it for just? So I had not heard of Google Forms until about, oh, uh, right before the baby came. And I've used it to create like a parent input form and like a teacher input form. Mm -hmm. And I can just set, I can just make a new, I can just copy and save as the new student's name. And I can email it to the teachers and the parents. And it puts it all into a, like an Excel sheet. Yeah. And then like, I do it now for a checklist for a couple of students and it automatically averages how they're doing across different classrooms. I mean, I guess I haven't like personally data. made forms to use on Google forms, but I yeah. feel like I should now I've filled them out as a, as the person filling them out a bunch. Right. I, I now do that with my parents and it's like all of a sudden they feel like they can write everything they want to and they can do it on their phone. Right. And an Excel sheet for you. And I've got glorious info to put into my reports. So. Boom. Look at that. All right. There's a takeaway from, from Matt. Tell us your tips and tricks to make <laughs> report writing easier. Or where do you sit on the standardized versus unstandardized? Are you offended that we said stop relying only on standard? I think this might be the first time the three of us have agreed completely. Pretty on much, the abandonment yeah. of only standardized assessment. I mean, I, I've never, I'm, I'm on, I'm in the middle. I feel like with, um, I need, but that's because of the settings I've been in, where but, I feel like that's been pushed. Yeah, and I agree insurance. with you, but I think we're just we're saying schools. don't use only standardized assessment. Yes, I think we all agree with that. And, and, another, and another thing is how much are people just going off of what they were taught in grad school by one yes. or two separate people? Like whoever taught their diagnostic prep, like for example, the college I went to taught me not to do age equivalence don't do it at all yes. don't do it at all don't even do it don't measure it don't put it in any evals 
And I've met many SLPs that love age equivalents. And, it's, and is one person right? Is one person wrong? But when you're in grad school, you're just in learning mode and you become so naive that you follow your one professor and you're just so eager to learn and so eager to graduate that you end up following one person. And that one person is not right. You know what I've actually added to my reports is the age equivalency. And like when I put in my chart for the standardized assessment, I actually put like mild, moderate, severe, profound, like as an extra column. Um, I, I put that in there too. And just for, you know, Matt, that's, yeah. that's what insurance looks for. Yeah. Well, I, I was actually at my new school district. I was just looking at the psych report and they had put all these modifiers about what they tested as. And it was the parent understood it perfectly. And then we get to my part where they're like, so this says they're at the first percentile. Does this mean that they're at the like top or the bottom? And I was like, oh, that's like severely bad. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I need to put this in there. But Mike, I put the age. So I found out that I put the age equivalent in as more information for the parent sometimes where they want to know. I've been hitting these questions lately of the parent asking me, so what does that mean? Like, how old would my child be with this kind of skill? And I try not to harp on it too much, but I find that like parents understand what we're trying to do and why we're targeting certain things. If I'm like, if I don't even mention it, but they see that this skill is like a a seven year old and the other skills are like 12 year olds and their 13 year old kid, you know, needs to focus on this one or whatever. But no grad school. I think they told us not to do age equivalents as well. Yeah. So, but does that make it right? No, it doesn't. That's just, you know, that's the, that's the opinion of, whoever that person is. And, and one thing that uh, you don't really realize until you graduate is a lot of professors in graduate programs have been out of the field for quite some time mm-hmm. and haven't treated actual patients for quite some time. They, you know, they leave the treating field of SLP to join academia. So, you know, not everything they say is correct. And, that, and that's why, you know, clinical experience is key. And you're talking careful, professors versus... Because some professors are also clinical supervisors mm-hmm. in the grad school level. So I feel like they're the ones who still have patients on their license, you know, because they're treating. Well, it's true. They, they're the ones no, who I... are treating, uh, training in the clinic, the therapist, the graduate therapist. I was just going to say, be careful, Mike. There are some schools that say that they sh- that tell their SLP grad students to listen to this show. And we're going to lose those listener bases <laughs> if we mm-hmm. say that your professors may not know what they're talking about. <laughs> so I, w- I mean, I would just say that it's no, it's no different than no, any single SLP, sure. just like your mentor SLP at your first job versus another SLP you met at a conference. Like we got to kind of piecemeal and put things together and build our own clinical knowledge judgment. base. Yeah. And our own clinical judgment, because that's important in assessments, just like we've talked about. <laughs> Hit us up, speechsciencepodcast.com, phone call or text message 614-681-1798 or hashtag SSPod on the social medias. When we come back from the break, we're going to check in with the informed SLP and we're going to jump headfirst into the ABA speech therapy uh, conundrum. You're listening to Speech Science. Hi, I'm Mei Chan. And I'm Martin Sibley. 
And we are the hosts of the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, where we spotlight high-profile topics and amazing people who are changing the worldview on disability. Even though we are oceans apart, we are bringing people from all over the world together to discuss inclusion, advocacy, accessibility, and real-life journeys. So listen to the Exceptional Leaders Podcast to hear the voices and stories from amazing changemakers and be inspired to make a real difference in the world. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. And now for our regular research review, brought to you by the Informed SLP. The Informed SLP releases a monthly newsletter that brings you plain language reviews of only the newest, most clinically applicable research, keeping you up to date on advances in the field and saving you tons of time. So let's get to it. Engaging in cognitive training every day may keep the doctor away. This is a review of two articles including Differential Effects of Cognitive Training Modules in Healthy Aging and Mild Cognitive Impairment, a Comprehensive Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control Trials from Psychology and Aging, and Cognitive Stimulation Therapy, or CST, for Dementia, a Systematic Review of Qualitative Research from Aging and Mental Health. This month, we have more data to support cognitive rehabilitation services. Here are some findings that emphasize the benefits and feasibility of cognitive training. This meta-analysis by Basic and colleagues found that cognitive training was equally effective in enhancing cognitive functioning in healthy adults and adults with mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. This was the case regardless of whether it focused on a single cognitive domain or component, for example, training episodic memory using a face name association task, or more than one domain or component, for example, training speed of processing and attention shifting using video games. They also found that training improved skills in domains that were not targeted as part of training if it focused on core abilities such as speed of processing, episodic memory, and executive functioning. Training also translated to improvements in instrumental activities of daily living if it was a multi-component or addressed executive functioning skills. Then we have a systematic review that investigated the experiences of family members, caregivers, and people with dementia, or PWD, to explore the components, impact, and feasibility of cognitive stimulation. Researchers concluded that cognitive training for PWDs improved one 
awareness, focus, and concentration. Two, some aspects of social communication and quality of relationships between PWDs and caregivers. Three, emotional well-being. And four, overall functioning. These positive outcomes were contingent on key implementation features and service delivery characteristics that met the needs of all stakeholders. A variety of factors made cognitive stimulation training, or CST, easy to implement, including one, educating facilitators and caregivers about CST's purpose and outcomes, two, training facilitators, three, formalizing the intervention delivery, for example, providing a manual, and four, identifying physical or emotional barriers that deterred participation in the PWD. So what seemed to work? First, providing mental stimulation. Second, ensuring adaptability and flexibility. Third, incorporating social engagement. Fourth, including physical activity. Fifth, creating a relaxed environment. And lastly, balancing difficulty levels. Common components of CST have the potential to augment its efficacy and acceptability for adults with and without impairments. Thanks for listening to this review. If you're interested in more, come visit us at www.theinformedslp.com. Tell us how you put the research into practice or find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Informed SLP. mentioned it right before we went to break, Michelle, or Michael, or somebody did, about... Someone with an M name mentioned it. <laughs> ...were linked to uh, that first clinical supervisor. I find myself modeled after my first supervisor in the schools on the way that I approach uh, everything in ETR meetings, <laughs> where like... Yep. Well, no, it's like, I remember she. I was sitting next to her in a meeting and an intervention specialist wrote like 400 minutes a week on math. And she's there to observe me and she was like, how are you going to get 400 minutes a week in math? And the intervention specialist was like, uh, class is 60, 50 minutes a day? And my, my supervisor was like, okay, 50 minutes a day times five, that's 250 minutes. Where are you going to get the other 150 minutes for the student? And they're like, uh, well, I, I'm going to pull them for a study hall the other five days a week. And she goes, okay, so that's 500 minutes. Now, 400 of those minutes is on counting? And they were like, they just gave me the dead eyes. And now I'm kind of that same way in meetings. I'm like, how are we going to do this? So do you guys model yourselves after your first supervisors? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, it's a combo for me of pieces that I've liked from all the different people that I was supervised or mentored by. And and it, we're constantly learning. I'm still learning. That's true. You know, and I'm learning from people I've, we've been doing this how long as as we're going on a decade, right? And mm -hmm. um but I'm still learning from you know the new I say new, the young SLP, brand new out of grad school the SLP, um, who's been practicing for two or three years because they have a different perspective than I do. 
No, that's fair. I had one person that was kind of like uh, an older SLP in my grouping at one of the schools who told me, quote, I don't do the AAC stuff because it wasn't around when I went to grad school. Oh, I mean, I heard that from well, SLPs too. I don't think I'd ever follow your lead. Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, near retirement SLPs who are like, I, you know, I, I'm not familiar with it. I defer to the other SLPs for it. Oh, no. She just said that she just changed the IEP goals if she ever got a kid with AAC. Okay. That's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, so let's jump into this. This is the this is out of the uh, ASHA journal. This was their cover story uh, for the month of October. Uh, it is uh, when SLP meets ABA, and if there were six letters that do not like each other the most, I would say it would be these. So the article basically talks about <laughs> it doesn't say anything. It really gives a brief history about. Yeah. Oh no. What happened? Oh, I just dropped water on my keyboard. Oh, oh no. You got this, dude. Oh, Matt, I'm sorry. No. I'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, uh, we can jump into the article, Mike. Yeah, let's do it. So when SLP meets ABA, it was in the ASHA leader. And if you mm -hmm. have your ASHA leader, leader sitting in a pile of mail somewhere. I'm um, sure many of our listeners do. It has that stack of blocks, <laughs> right, on the, the picture for it. And um, the subheading, which I just wanted to read because it says, a deeper understanding of the underpinnings of ABA and speech-language pathology approaches to autism may clarify tensions and perhaps offer potential for reconciliation. And I would just say, based on that quick subheading and the commentary I've seen in social media of um, neurodiversity groups who tend to, um, you know, adults with autism or uh, who prefer to be called autistic adults, like that person not using person first language, but using the identity first that we've talked about, um, they identify as an autistic person. Um, and the ABA realm of that you know, we've also talked about that there's a that neither of these two parties are happy with this article because it really didn't say a whole lot. Um, what did, what was your take, Mike? Yeah, uh, there's certainly a lot to dive into here, and I, I think one of the best things is what you mentioned is what we see a lot on Facebook social media of people talking and uh, seeing, you know, exactly how ABA has infringed on them personally. Uh, I certainly have seen this. And, uh, I think the biggest thing that you know, I, I'm sure many SLPs can agree with is just how, uh, insurance really tailors to ABA in so many different ways. So, it, uh, insur most insurances will pay for and will cover massive amounts of ABA and very small amounts of speech therapy. Uh, why I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely educated on, uh, but ABA seems to be something that tends to infringe because they have greater resources, especially within the medical realm. So mm -hmm. I just jump back on. Yeah, and... I I thought it was interesting that. So let me find this spot in this article because it. Um... While you're doing that, Michelle, I just kind of jump back on and. Yeah. Who knows what happened to my keyboard? I'm going to dry it as we talk. Okay, but sounds I think, good. I think part of that is, Mike, when we talk about that they're willing to bill for more, is that like 
our job, our SLP job is is highly linked to putting our patients and our students back into the least restrictive environment in the schools, the least restrictive environment in the nursing homes where we want to get them back. And I know ABA is going to be more linked to the schools, but like we do our best to try to get the, the student the minimal amount of therapy so they can succeed on their own. And, you know, we constantly talk about how, and this is that double-edged sword. We constantly talk about how a student doesn't need 300 minutes a week of articulation therapy if we can effectively teach uh, the teacher to give the correct verbal prompt and we work with them for 40 minutes a week. Or we work with a, uh, a student that is nonverbal or in the multiple handicap room or the multiple disability room and we talk about we're going to work on the education of a, of a teacher or the aides about how to use the communication device because we're all about trying to help that student succeed in not independent. Well, yes, independently, but we want to try and get the people that are around them to, to, to deliver good carryover so that they don't rely on us. I feel like with a lot of ABA, it's the complete opposite where they say everything is a behavior and the only people that can fix a behavior is me and my magic ABA therapy. And, and I'm oversimplifying and I hope I don't offend anybody too much, but like, I feel like that might be why they can get so much more in the billing realm mm-hmm. because their whole idea is focused off of, they need seven days a week of direct ABA therapy where we say, Hey, we'll try to do it in two weeks and then teach the parent to do it the other three days. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's starting to come out more and more. And I feel like I have such a learning curve on this of, of learning autistic individuals' preferences on whether to be called a person with autism, whether to be called to say I'm an autistic person, uh, and what their perspectives are on the ABA that they went through and on the SLP, their like speech language pathology that they went through. Right. Um, and so you talked about, okay, obviously ABA being rooted in behavior. What I thought was fascinating in this article in ASHA, if you looked at it, was it talks about the root, the history of ABA being rooted in um, which I didn't know, maybe this is just my own, I didn't know that this was based in um, the research of psychologist B.F. Skinner. So straight up operant conditioning, right? Yeah. Behavior change, mm-hmm. reinforcement, punishment. Um, so an ABA, so they give, say, for example, an ABA trained clinician, inappropriate behavior could be children jiggling in their seats or looking away for extended period of times prompting such directions as sit still and eyes on me okay so then there was a survey done to gauge slps bcbas and dual certified because there are people who are certified slps slash bcbas right um there was a survey done 2017 survey of 137 of these professionals so it seems like a variety i don't know the breakdown And it says they found nearly all behavior analysts, 91% said they took a Skinnerian, so a Skinner-based approach to language development. Among SLPs, most followed a cognitive, semantic, or psycholinguistic approach. Again, that makes sense based on our training, Mm -hmm. which is more developmental or relationship-based. And the dual-certified professionals lean towards 
the BCBAs, 70% taking a Skinnerian approach and 13% being cognitive semantic. That was interesting to me because we're, our training and our perspectives are totally different. And I mean, I, of course, am biased towards the SLP training because I want it to be relationship-based. I want them to not need me long-term. Exactly. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it best. That was that was a very good way to very good way to say it. Relationship based, and that's what all therapies are about. And this is what I always say: it's all about increasing quality of life. So this person does not always need therapy. And we've seen what ABA does and how it's that classical conditioning and how it's just so it 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 increases prompt dependency and it doesn't really create natural communication. So us as SLPs, when we see, uh, you know. I've seen ABA therapists working on articulation. I've seen them working on MLU. I've seen them working on vocabulary. I've seen them working on literacy. I've mm-hmm. seen it. And you know, what are we supposed to do when we see these things? That's yep. them infringing. They didn't go to grad school. They didn't go through what we went through. They don't have masters in communication sciences. They don't, you know, they're one, one separate thing. Like you can be SLP and ABA fine. You can do both, but these ABA people are one small thing. They don't know about DIR. They don't know about other approaches. It's just one specific approach that insurances seem to love, but they absolutely, if it's behavior wise, if it's small things, work on it, but don't be working on articulation. Don't be working on MLU. Don't be working on these things, you know, work on getting them to, you know, well, and you said insurances behaviors. seem to love, and I think his, his, historically in the last decade, that seems to have been very true, um, but it's starting to change because I've seen the two annual reports that came out from TRICARE, which is my insurance being that mm-hmm. we're a military family, right? And this article references it, that two annual reports from TRICARE's comprehensive autism care demonstration raise questions about ABA intervention. So TRICARE co- provides coverage um, for ABA for sure, because I've seen kids that I've treated have 20 to 40 hours of ABA and see me for 30 minutes twice a week. Um, But TRICARE's report found that after six months of intensive ABA in over 1,500 children, and I'm reading this from the article, 7% improved, 6% worsened, and the other 87% had, quote, little to no change in symptom presentation. So I feel like we're on the cusp of insurance is potentially not covering that because of things like, I mean, if you're looking at 87% have little to no change, I'd be having to write a, if, if I had no change, those articles, exactly. I'd be having to write my appeals and, uh, and quote Asha and quote why this child needs speech therapy. Um, I'd be having to prove myself a little bit to get that speech therapy approved. And kind of going back to what you you mentioned earlier, just kind of as a, a proof of point or a proof of definition or whatever, mm-hmm. I always get the Skinner and the universal grammar and the psycholinguistic point of view of language acquisition always confused. So if you're like me, Skinner's approach is basically it's behavioral reinforcement. So if you say milk and someone gives you milk, then you know the term for milk is milk. Mm-hmm. Um, Chomsky was the what was it the cognitive the universal grammar was Chomsky um, and then psycholinguistic is the idea that the input the learner is exp- I'm sorry asserts that besides the input the learner is exposed to manipulation of such input through interaction 
is what forms the basis for language development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and kind of... and also I think uh, because Skinner talks about operant conditioning, right? Mm-hmm. So that's pairing mm-hmm. a behavior with a consequence, and Correct. it can be getting something, removing something, and they break down terms with that, you know, with punishment versus reward, and there's details, but the basics is behavior with a consequence. Well, classical is conditioning what... is what we think of more of like training a dog that when you right. whistle, they come to you. So you're pairing something though. that isn't naturally, yeah isn't automatically connected with something with a stimulus of some kind. And I think this is where I get confused as a therapist because like we know that like I have a daughter, she's going to start babbling Mm -hmm. and she's going to say mama because it's one of the easiest sounds to say that she's just going to neutral vowel sound and then open and close her mouth. And all of a sudden she's going to say mama and like, we're going to overreact and say, oh my gosh, you're saying mama. And she's going to identify that with with whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like when we over or get confused with that, that's when we can look past some of the negatives that they do with ABA sometimes. Because they'll use that as kind of like the definition of behavioral training. Um, I worked with an ABA once who said, I'm sorry, BCBA, different. Of course. And, <laughs> and like... Every time the student touched the bathroom card, they made him leave class and go to the bathroom. And it's like, not like, why? Why is that like, and they're like, it's to train him to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's going to work. It didn't help. I just, I don't know. I feel like, and, and I came in back into this midway, but like, I feel like, the biggest problem we have besides the encroachment is the, the abuse acquisition, the allegations And anytime your field has abuse allegations mm-hmm. or a history to, of that, even if a it's vast history, yep. yeah. a vast history of it, you have to really look at why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, I was reading in the art, like not that article, but I pulled up, a, I just Googled abuse and ABA is abuse. Just, you know, just or ABA and abuse. And it was like this one where it talked about, oh, where's the state? They still are using shock therapy. Is that because recent? It's an ABA thing. ABAI, uh, ABA International. This was referenced, if you look in the article, um, Julie. Oh, shoot. I got to find it. Um, in the article, we were just talking about Julie, who runs a neurodiversity group on Facebook, I know, mm-hmm. and is an SLP. Julie Roberts. Okay, She's the yeah. founder of the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective. And she um, owns a speech and language clinic in Houston. And she's completely opposed to ABA. And she references what you were talking about. She also opposes ABA. This is straight from the article in ASHA. Support for the use of shock therapy by a residential center in Massachusetts. And then it says in parentheses, the U.S. food, and that was ABAI, so Applied Behavioral Analysis International Support for the Use of Shock Therapy by a Residential Center in Massachusetts. In parentheses, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration banned the use of shock therapy devices in March 2020. March. Like the beginning of the pandemic. That's this what, year. Yeah. This year. What? And that is the Judge Rotenberg Educational Center, by the way, in uh, Canton, Massachusetts. Wow. 
in my head, this was like, I, I feel like I have so much to learn still. And I, it is challenging trainings that I've been to early in my career about autism and about oh. autistic individuals. But like, I, I need to keep learning and growing as a therapist. So when you think of shock therapy, I don't know what you're thinking of, but they used a device called the graduated electronic decelerator which what? was designed by Matthew Israel, the school's founder. Let me share this with you guys. Is this as terrible as it sounds? This, oh, it is even worse. Can you guys see the screen? Hold on. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. No. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've seen this. So for the listeners at home, basically it looks like I know a, we're going down a rabbit hole, but what? <laughs> what? Right. It's just, it, This is what they use. So there's some great drawings there. I love, I love, right. the, I love the patent drawing. So it is like a pair of suspenders with the receiving unit uh, midway in the chest, like between the rib cage and the belly. And they said they dis they he was Matthew Israel created the device to replace the older punishments of spanking, pinches, and muscle squeezes. Oh, so this is better. ADA. Yeah, this is better. Unbelievable. Uh, even though the United Nations. Uh, list, listed it on their report of torture, and it was finally banned in 2020 by the United States. 2020, six months ago. Insane. But oh look, here's a student drew how they were getting shocked at the ABA clinic, and the students tied to a desk or a table, reading "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please stop it." What? Wow. Uh, let's see. The center has stated that the GED was used as a last resort to prevent aggressive or self-injurious behaviors after positive behavioral support had failed. However, an 06 report by the New York State Education Department found that no significant positive behavior support existed, and the device was used for failing to be neat, wrapping one foot around the leg of a chair, stopping work for more than 10 seconds, closing your eyes for more than five, or minor acts of noncompliance. Ah. Uh. I don't oh, even know they were what to also known that. to accidentally activate and malfunction. So this was uh, to get back to the ABAI. Yeah, sorry. They approved this. They per they wanted it. They said that this was good. What? Promoted it, not approved it. Promoted it. Oh, I, I have no, I have no response to that. I mean, so like, again, like, obviously I know that we are SLPs and I have friends who are BCBAs, but what? <laughs> and again, I don't know the difference between the ABA and ABA. I, but like, it's just, okay. It's just the international version of their group. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I don't know. It's just. I don't. I, I. No one has approved. No one has said that speech therapy is abuse, right? I mean, it may feel like it. I mean, I think you could go back to like old. Whether it was it was it wasn't yeah. certified under like ASHA, I don't believe, but old speech therapy, like making people put rocks and whatever in their mouth, oh, like yeah, good call, King's good speech, call. that there's um, things that are in the history of quote speech therapy, right? That are definitely not approved or okay nowadays but it's 2020 and we're talking about shock therapy mm -hmm. so i 
I don't know. I mean, I think that's my biggest my biggest complaint and conundrum about ABA is that the people that are used on it or have it used on them claim that it's torture. It's yeah, abuse. when that's the the people we should be listening to are the people with autism, the autistic individuals who are saying this is not okay. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Sorry, no, I do know. Sorry, that's just my reaction to the like overwhelming crappiness of the situation. Yeah, I know we kind of went off course from the article, but, but it does reference no. this in the article though. You're right. I mean, I can see why both sides get mad at this article because the article doesn't say ABA is bad, but it also points out the some of the stuff that ABA has done in the past. Mm-hmm. And I'll read the part where, okay, let me see. Um, that ABAs will criticize, and I, I wanted to know your response to this. Where is it? Um, like an ABA's criticism when they see an SLP doing therapy. Is that, and this is from someone who is dual certified, I believe, um, that the BCBA may watch an SLP and think, quote, you're using strategies, but you don't have a real plan and you're not collecting data to measure changes in specific target behaviors. I thought that was interesting because BS. Yeah, I do too, because <laughs> we have to collect data. Like we have well, to measure growth. And, and Mike, you're the EF guy, but mm -hmm. like. I think everything we do is some version of behavior. And I think, and this is kind of where sometimes I feel like I do kind of agree with Skinner to a point, not the operant conditioning part, but the behavioral part of it is that I think everything we do is behavior. I think it comes down fully into how you train for that behavior. And I mean, we see it as parents, you know, it was 40 years ago. It was, Everyone spanked their kids. And now we're realizing that maybe you shouldn't beat your children into submission. You need to positively reinforce them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't know, man. Like, I feel like in our realm, we're really hitting on the, the language building part of it. So BCBAs don't care about the why. They care about the symptom. They don't care about the source. They care about changing the behavior. Mm -hmm. they're not changing they're not you know it'd be like your doctor going you go to the doctor and go i have this cough and they're like here's some dex some dexy mm -hmm. little magic orange pills that'll keep you from coughing mm -hmm. meanwhile you've got aspirational pneumonia but they're like here's some dexy you'll be good and i feel like that's what the bcbas do or the not the bcbas aba does that it's treating the symptoms and not the the cause yeah yeah really what a lot of ABA does, like you mentioned EF, what a lot of ABA does is it treats the external. So it's kids who are, you know, externally having behaviors and not following through on, you know, what we, what we deem as socially appropriate or socially inappropriate. Of I feel course. like that's key. Like what we and society have deemed as socially appropriate. But what I do with executive functioning is I focus on what's internal. So what is this kid doing internally, privately, uh, focused inward, and what's causing the, ex the external behaviors? What's causing the dysregulation, the lack of motivation, the lack of, the lack of metacognitive self-evaluation? 
Uh, are they not using their future thinking skills? Are they not using their episodic memory? Are they not using their inhibition to stop, breathe, and think before acting? It's not always about the external. Mm-hmm. I feel like we can go round and round. Let's yep. move on. Unfortunately, if you have an opinion, hit us up speech science podcast.com. You can also email us speech science podcast at gmail.com hashtag it up. S S pod or six, one, four, six, eight. All right. Hold on. Did I do the number right? Six, one, four, six, eight, one, one, seven, nine, eight guys dropping water on my keyboard has really messed with my evening right now. So I do apologize. <laughs> Hey, so uh, every week we also do the ASHA Spotlight where we look at something that ASHA is doing. Uh, It's really easy to pinpoint everything that ASHA is doing wrong. But I thought this week we would uh, look at upcoming ASHA conventions because this year it was canceled and I was excited to go to sunny San Diego, uh, California. But upcoming ASHA locations, uh, next year it's in D.C. and then New Orleans, Boston, Dallas, back to D.C., and then in 2026, it's in Indy. So make your plans now, I guess. I want to go back, Mike. You've never been, right? To Asha? Yeah. Yeah, I went to the one oh, in. Yeah. I went to the one in Philly. Okay, I've been to the one in Denver and Orlando. Hey, me too. Yeah, and Orlando was nice because I got to go to Galaxy's Edge at the at the end of the evening. It's really nice was, because you went to Disney and Universal. <laughs> Michelle was doing like the live show and I was hanging out in Batu making a light playing with lightsabers playing with lightsabers so no I mean hey I but I wish... I got to meet the hope speaks people and they're pretty awesome go. that's true I wish Asha would come more to the midwest more often yeah or the middle of the have country. they they did um Indianapolis in 2026 that's midwest and then New Orleans Denver Atlanta Philly and LA all right. So, whatever. All right, let's wrap this puppy up. Hopefully, we're back next week and we don't take another four weeks to do this because we are on episode 26 of this fourth season. So, we are getting close. What number uh, are we to on? Our what, magic what number 27. Episode? I'm sorry. This is 127 for the 127. year. 127. Total, but 27th episode of the season. And I believe we're going to wrap up right around 32 or 33. So, it's been a great fourth season. We still want to hear from you at home but between now and the next time michelle what are you looking forward to well i don't even know if i've said this on any of our air on air yet but Mm -mm. i'm having another baby in a couple months so Mm -hmm. um, due in december another baby speech science very exciting Um, and yeah i'm looking forward to my husband has a day off tomorrow and um and we are going to do some hiking and just get outside and enjoy some early fall weather, which is a lot hotter this week than I wanted it to be because I like sure. fall. True story. Yeah. Mike, what are you looking forward to this next week? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, so, well, uh, tomorrow's Columbus Day, of course. Is based, it really? based on, yeah, tomorrow's Columbus or Day. Or Indigenous People's Day. Or Indigenous on the People's Day. That's, that's true. Uh, so, that'll be a, so tomorrow should be more of a chill day. Uh, yeah, pretty much just, just getting back into the routine of things. Uh, I have a couple of evals coming up that I'm going to do. Uh, and hopefully I get to, I get to, you know, work with more people in person. There you go. Very yeah. nice. 
Uh, for me, uh, we had a cake delivered from the 513 Bakery here in Cincinnati. Shout out to them. It is a recreation of my wife and I's wedding cake, so I get to look forward to eating cake this week. And uh, that's really about it. I've got evals coming up that I have to get completed. So, other than that, nothing. Awesome. We want to hear from you, so always head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and email speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on the hashtags, hashtag SSPod. Our opening music tonight was Please Listen Carefully by Jazard. It's licensed under an attribution and share like license. The bump music is County Fair Rock, copyrighted John Deku. Find his music over at soundcloud.com slash dirtdogmusic. The informed SLP was using At The Count by Broke For Free, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. And our closing music is The Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. In a conversation off the air, Mike had mentioned he wants a new opening music, so we are going to throw <laughs> it out there to the uh, Speech Science Podcast listeners. Uh, if you are married to somebody like John Deku and you want to get your music featured in our show we or if be, you make your music or either if you way make your own music i just was assuming like you might be married to like someone that's like uber musically talented because i have no musical talent true there's some but, musically talented slps out there if you are musically <laughs> talented married to someone that you can manipulate into making us free music <laughs> <laughs> and you want it featured in the show we would be more than welcome to accept it uh while we scour the bottoms of free music archive dot org to use it on this show for michelle wintering and michael mcleod i'm matt hot and the immortal words of janice Wright: always be a willow the oak looks strong until the wind blows and then it cracks under pressure the willow will bend and then return to form until next week so long everybody bye bye Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts.